You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. I like hearing your voice through the mic. It's is a different it, Brandon than is like... It, is it sultry and raspy? It's better than real life Brandon <laughs> voice. No. Uh, no, yeah, it is. Well, it's a little deep right now because you're sick, but uh, we'll get to that. You know, this week we have a brand new sponsor and it is a new podcast altogether, the Hot Money Podcast. So this is a new series all about the porn industry and the money that fuels it. It's hosted and researched by two Financial Times reporters who kind of started digging into the porn industry. And they found that even though porn obviously relies on performers to literally bear it all, the information about the people and the businesses and the money running the industry is hidden away like a some sort of a state secret. So on the Hot Money podcast, their hosts, Patricia Nilsson and Alex Barker, they're taking listeners inside the porn industry to uncover who is really pulling the strings. So their reporting reveals a story that goes way beyond a single person. It's really a story that includes billionaires and tech geniuses and some of the most powerful finance companies in the world. So this is the Hot Money Podcast, and you can listen to the Hot Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And hopefully you're already subscribing to this one, so you can go ahead and uh, check out Hot Money. Now, Brandon and I, you may be able to hear, are under the weather. And actually, we're feeling really good, but our voices and throats are not. So we're lucky that not too long ago, we actually sat down with our friend and a former guest, Farzana Doctor, to talk about her experience with dating, with trauma, with her new book, Writing as Therapy. Uh, Farzana Doctor, if you don't know her, is a Canadian. She's a celebrated author, activist, and psychotherapist. And we know you're going to enjoy this conversation with her. So without further ado... Here it is. Thank you so much for joining us, Farzana. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and it's so nice to be back. Thank you for having me. That's right. This is uh, your second time. Last time we were talking about female genital cutting or female genital mutilation because you had written an award-winning novel. It's a, a really, really good one. And this time we're really shifting gears because you have, as I said before, written a poetry book, and you're going to read us one of those poems. But also I wanted to talk to you about poetry itself and your writing process. So you wrote these poems in your 40s. You say you were going, yeah, you were going through a long-term relationships breakup. You had explored polyamory, explored online dating, began to understand old trauma and loss, and then you fell in love again, all while going through perimenopause. <laughs> <laughs> the perimenopause is still happening. All right. It's uh, it's there. That's a lot. So I, I'm really curious what motivated you to write these poems, and were they always intended for publishing? Yeah, thank you. So I've been writing poetry since I was a child. You know, poetry is one of those really accessible mediums. We get taught some of it, you know, in high school, even in grade school. So I've been writing it my whole life. It was always my play medium. Um, when I moved into writing novels, I would write poetry on the side to kind of get ideas or feelings out. And mm. I never really had any idea of how to write poetry. So I just kept churning them out. And I did a lot of it in my 40s. And then when I went back to look at how many I had, I realized that I had enough for a collection. And then I had to go through the process of working with editors and figuring out which of them were actual poems, which of them, you know, were belly flops, which ones 
friends I could fix and how would I fix them? So I started learning more about poetry as a way to revise and also create a collection that has some flow to it. But it was a very kind of fertile year for or decade for me because of all of those changes and all of that angst and all of that pleasure as well. You know, these heavy topics that you're, you said you're exploring, like processing old trauma in your 40s, I think that can feel like a lot. I'm curious why it was important for you to, to go back and process old trauma or understand old trauma and loss. And I, for you individually, but also your therapist. So maybe after we could talk about how it might apply to clients. Yes. Well, you know, for me, the trauma came knocking at my door and there was no choice. And I think that's often how clients also experience it. They're having all these symptoms and disruptive, intrusive things happening. So for me, it was, you know, having body memories and nightmares and freezing up during sex. Those were all the things that made me go back to therapy and say, okay, time to process this. I was also doing a lot of activism. And in the early days of the activism, when I hadn't yet done enough of my own therapy work, I would do some kind of public speaking thing and then feel so terrible for a couple of days. I would, you know, be dissociative, my body would hurt. And so that was also a sign that if I wanted to keep doing the activism, I needed to do some more work. So that's, that's how it was for me. It was just like not much of a choice. It just felt like my body was saying, go finish this work. Right, staring you right in the face. And so what about people who feel it's too late? Maybe they don't want to dig up old trauma. Is it important to explore it? I don't know about too late. I don't think it's ever too late to have a better quality of life and to understand ourselves better. I don't think you have to do it. Like if you're feeling like, okay, it's not really bothering me, it's not impacting myself or my relationships, then maybe you leave it alone. I don't know. I think a lot of people as well, I've had clients who will come and they'll do just a little chunk of the work. And in my mind as a therapist, I'm like, but if we did this and this and this, this would be much better for you, but they're done, the initial piece of work, and maybe they'll come back in five years, I don't know. So I think we have to gauge for ourselves, uh, you know, how we're feeling and um, how much comfort we're having in our lives and bodies. You know, that makes me think about people who tell other people they need therapy. Do you ever run into this, right? So a partner will say to a partner, well, you need to go to therapy, oftentimes because they're diagnosing them with something that is that they perceive as a deficit or that they perceive as a threat to the relationship. Uh, and they'll say, you need therapy. And other times it's because the first partner is in therapy and has discovered therapy and is getting so much out of therapy that they believe the whole world ought to be in therapy. And when, we, when I say therapy, I don't mean different modalities that are therapeutic. They're saying, no, you need to be in kind of psychotherapy, in talk therapy. Do you run into this with people who, who want to tell other people what to do? Yeah, it, it's almost like people become a bit like evangelical about, you know, like it was so good for me, you should do it. And I think they're also saying, and I want you to understand me. I want to have some of the same language that we can start having these kinds of conversations. You know, like, for example, if I'm working on boundaries and my partner doesn't really have a clue about what that language is, how do I talk about those boundaries? So I can see why people do that. But I, I also see clients who maybe they're, it's, it's a couple's session that I'm doing and one person is really pushing the other to go to therapy because they want they want to fix the problem and they perceive that the problem is their partner and really it's a couple's issue right both people need 
to work on things like attachment, wounding, and so on. Right. And I guess we can only do what we can do. We can't force anybody to do anything else. I think that what you're, the way you describe it as evangelical is so accurate. You know, one of my observations is when something works for us, we tend to universalize and generalize and say, well, it'll work for everyone else. And the truth is that, I, I mean, obviously we believe that therapy is a, a very important option or tool, but it's actually not always going to work for everyone. Right. Especially if someone feels pressured into going, especially if somebody feels as though the therapist is inevitably not going to be an ally. We know that that's the most important thing, right? That therapeutic alliance. How do you feel about your therapist? Do you trust your therapist? Do you feel that they have your back? So for folks who do have old trauma in their lives, because I receive, you know, many questions about people struggling in the bedroom or in relationships or with attachment who did experience, for example, abuse when they were a child or a traumatic event in their teens or in college, how do they take the first step to start getting help? Because I do think that there's a natural and evolutionary avoidance because if I have to go tell somebody about it, I might relive it again. It might feel more intense. It might make things worse for a period of time. How do you, how do you get over that? I think you just move through it. And I think it is true that when you start delving into it, it can feel worse for a while. It's like you're you're embarking on this project that isn't really fun. It might be really helpful and it might eventually lead to something much better. But initially it's it's like you're going to be in a difficult soup. So I think you just move through it and you just accept that it's part of the process. And I also think that there are so many ways to heal, right? So, you know, as a psychotherapist, I have a bias. I think everyone should go. But, <laughs> you know, maybe it's prayer for some people. Maybe it's self-help books. Maybe it's listening to these kinds of podcasts, right? And processing your feelings afterwards. Maybe it's talking to your best friend. There are a lot of ways to heal. Right, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be therapy for everyone. But I do think it's important to if you are looking to find the right person for you, I think there's this fear that a therapist is going to force you to talk about a traumatic event. And I think maybe people need a bit of reassurance that you move at your own pace, you might encourage someone you might say, hey, this might be worth exploring. But it's not like you have to go into the session and share everything at once. Um, you're going to get to know them, they're going to get to know you. Therapy has changed so much, right? Radical therapists, we should about ourselves, right? And actually, I should ask you about that. Were you trained to kind of never self-disclose and have watched the evolution um, of the value of self-disclosure that I think is a lot less hierarchical, right? I, I, just to give people some context, I think in old school psychotherapy, there was like the expert who was listening and you never knew anything about them, right? Like you may not even know their first name. They were just Dr. So-and-so. But there's been a real shift. You know, I was talking to a social worker who's a therapist the other day she meets clients for coffee. Other people will text with their clients. Like these are things that 20 years ago were unheard of. It was considered unprofessional, but really rooted in hierarchical notions of people who know their stuff and have their, sh you know, have their shit together versus the clients who are supposed to be a mess when in fact we're all human. So we're all equally <laughs> messy. Yes. I was totally taught to very like really limit self-disclosure. And when I did it, it needed to be almost rehearsed. Like you had to think it through before you did it. And I have seen a shift. And I think some of it has to do with the world we live in. Like I see amazing therapists on Instagram, you know, sharing pieces of themselves. And when I first published 
like my first novel in 2007, I realized that I needed to have a more public presence. And I really grappled with how do I move from that very hidden therapist place to a therapist where, you know, people are going to be reading my books. And gradually over time, that's become easier and easier to do. And sometimes, you know, people have listened to interviews and they, they've heard about the female genital cutting piece or, you know, they're, they're listening to, you know, how I went through my own process of therapy. And I think that that's okay. There are going to be some clients, I think, though, who might prefer to have more of that clear slate because they, they have a tendency to worry too much about the therapist. So, oh, I can't tell my therapist about this issue because I know that's a vulnerability for her. Of course, it's not true that you can't do that, but some clients, maybe parentified children might feel like I've got to protect my therapist. So, you know, with some clients, I might not share very much about my life. That's interesting. And so how do you gauge that from the onset? Or is that something that you have to kind of information you garner over time? I think uh, it takes time, right? It's about the relationship building and then using your intuition as well. You notice a lot of things along the way, right? Just how we interact and what the boundaries are like, and then you figure it out. Absolutely. All right. So when we talk about therapy versus activities or tools that are therapeutic, writing is one of those therapeutic tools. And so I presume that writing this set of poems was a therapeutic process for you. So I'm curious, how do you see writing as therapeutic? How do people use writing as a therapeutic tool? You know, it's it's a way of expressing feelings, first of all, rather than suppressing feelings. So that's one of the therapeutic elements. And I, I want to say that there is a difference between therapeutic writing and like art writing, writing, mm. you know, for the purposes of publishing something artful or universal. And I think that's in the editing process. So the raw stuff comes out and that's maybe therapeutic in the first draft, but I'm somebody who might do like 20 drafts of a poem. And so by the time it gets to the 20th, it's a little further from me and my own process. And it becomes something, you know, I'm looking at the wordplay, for example, I'm looking at like the rhythm of the lines. I'm looking at where does one line stop and then start. And so so then it becomes looking more at how do I edit for art? But the initial process, I think, is about the expression and just getting it out and identifying the feelings uh, with more clarity. And so do you assign or encourage therapeutic writing to clients? I always do. People don't necessarily want to do it, but I always suggest that people write about what they're experiencing. I also encourage people to keep a therapy journal so that like after the session, they can write down some of the important things that came up so that they can keep processing it versus like forgetting about it. I mean, I do that. Absolutely. I have a therapy journal. It's not a journal. It's a running email, like a, just an email window where I jot down my takeaways from the session because I think my therapist is brilliant and she'll say things and I'm like, oh, crap. Car Her name's Carla. Carla is like, right. So I'll write it down. I'll also write down, I guess, homework. Like she never says this is your homework. But if she says something that resonates with me and I think, OK, I should probably try this. I'll also write down reminders to myself. So this is how I personally, and this isn't how everybody, but this is how I I make therapy more effective for me. And for me, nothing actually exists 
unless it's in writing. So I, people probably know I do like to talk, but I struggle with focus to, to really process what people are saying. And so I can, obviously it was my job for a while, but it's very, very tiring for me. Like for me to sit and listen for an hour because of the way my brain is wired is, is a lot of work. It feels like, it, honestly, it feels like I've just ran a marathon. And so whereas reading, I can read in volumes and volumes and volumes and I read quickly. And so the written word is so important to me to write myself, but also to read from others. So like, for example, in our relationship, if Brennan writes something to me, it stays with me and is more impactful and honestly more meaningful than if he says it out loud, which may, again, may not be other people's experiences. Like you, I don't know, do you care about things written down versus said in words? Uh, I know that I do care about having them written because I find it's something that I can reflect back on. There's no mincing of words there's no of things getting lost and I'm guilty of that like I find when we're in a discussion a debate an argument I get flooded I say things and I don't remember what I say and I don't mean that I say mean 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 things I just mean I say things and they're not factual or they could be wrong and then I have somebody who I'm lucky enough to have a partner who remembers absolutely everything verbatim it's like you said one two three four five six seven did I? I'm like, oh man, I probably did say that. Hang on, was the lucky a sarcastic lucky? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But in all seriousness, I, I, I'm lucky in that respect. So I find that when I write things down, like what's effective for me is writing it down, sending it or showing it to, to Jess, and then expanding upon it in conversation because it's easy for things to get lost in translation saying something so it's just the writing down really helps and then I, I like to to discuss as another layer on top of that I can explain what I mean in, in maybe more detail but I find it brings me much more clarity but where I'm where I get not frustrated but I, I get lazy is I'll write things down and I don't have a like a dedicated journal or a book or something in the heat of the moment I'm writing something in my iPad or I'm writing something as a text message and then I'm sharing it. So I think it would be helpful for me to have like a dedicated journal that, I don't know, goes in a fire safe or something so I never lose it and can go back. Because looking at the 10 journal entries that I've ever written, in all seriousness, they go back like 15 years. But it's also a nice way to kind of reflect as how it was thinking and or how I was feeling and what I was thinking in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, the, the couples therapist in me says, you know, it's really good, Jess, that you know what your owner's manual is. And then you communicated it right to Brandon. So like, then you can you can do you can you can talk to each other in the way that is going to work. Absolutely. Yeah. There's one thing I'm good at telling you what I want. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Serious. It's just like It's a list. It's it's better in writing. Everything is better in writing for us. Well, for us. that's really interesting and I'm sure we've talked about this on the program before, but uh, so many therapists and experts will say do not argue over text message. Do not argue over email in writing because it lacks tone, it lacks nuance, you don't pick up on the body language. I have found the opposite for us over the years that anytime it's been a long time, but anytime we've had like a really intense argument, we always resolve it over text. There's something about slowing down with your thumbs versus speaking that really works for us. Like I can think about years and years ago, I think like I was on a park bench writing to you and you were probably on another park <laughs> bench writing to me and resolving these issues. And again, I'm not saying that's what other people should do, but that's what works for us. I'm curious in your experience, because the overarching message is don't do it. <laughs> do you see couples who do this? Well, I see people fighting over text, not 
uh, resolving over text. So if you're in a mindset of we are trying to figure this out, you're going to be slower versus if you're fighting, then you're just blurting a lot of crap across to each other. So maybe that's the difference. Right. That that mindset of are we trying to resolve something together or am I trying to be right? Because I'll tell you, with you in arguments, like we've been together for a long time. I think we're coming up on 21 years uh, just around the corner. Yeah. I, I don't feel like you are ever trying to like prove that you're right. No, often I'm trying to figure out <laughs> if what I'm saying makes sense. But you know what's beautiful about us exchanging and debating over um, over text or email or whatever it is when we're having an argument is that it gives me a chance to take a beat because in the heat of the moment I will say things that don't make sense. I don't want to say that I'm I'm mean. I don't think that I mean. I think mm. that I'm always trying to to express that I care about you. But in the moment, it's hard to not feel like oh I'm angry about something. But I tend to blurt things out without thinking about them. So when I'm forced to write it down, it gives me just a few seconds to think: Is what I'm putting in writing? what I actually feel. And it also gives me a chance to just say, you know what, think about like the, the person on the other end of this. I care about this person a lot. Is what I'm putting in writing going to affect them? Like, is it going to hurt them? Because I feel like once you put it out there, it's hard to take that back. Yes. I'm often thinking about, am I making things worse here? Am I creating more threat? You know, what we want to be doing when we're resolving is being really friendly in our tone right? We want to be reminding each other that we're each other's people rather than enemies. You know, I'll credit Brandon with that over all the years we've been together and every fight we've had. And of course, there's been many over 21 years. There's always this reaffirming of commitment. Like he's always saying, I want to work this out, whether it's with his time or his energy or his eye contact or his body language or affection or his words. And so any fear of abandonment that is in me, either from previous experiences or just from that human <laughs> nature, like fear of being abandoned, is always assuaged. And so no matter what he says or no matter what we're disagreeing on or even no matter what I'm feeling, I feel as though I always know that he's here. Like he's not leaving. He's not wavering. There's no, there's just no um, threat to the foundation of our connection. And you always have communicated. And I've learned from you because I, I wouldn't, think about that. Honestly, I'd be like, screw you. You're wrong. Suck it. <laughs> you, know what it you know what it is too? I think for me, years and years ago, I did do, I did things that were game playing. You know, you storm out and you don't say something and you do something that maybe makes the other person feel threatened. Even if it's like you just like in the middle of an argument, you just storm out of the house and you walk away and it's late at night. And then your partner thinks, where are you going? Are you coming back? Are you safe? Are you all of these things? And I remember thinking, you know what? I'm a dick. Like, let's be honest here. I'm, I'm being an absolute dick. I'm wielding control or um, power over the other person's fear or vulnerability. And I'm like, what am I trying to accomplish by doing this? You know what I mean? So yeah. And when I started thinking about this, it was like, this is just a game. So you know what? Stop playing a game. Your goal is to resolve this. To resolve this, it means you're going to have to, like you just said, kind of deal with that suit that you're in at the moment and kind of take ownership over what's happening, knowing that my goal is, of course, as always, to make it better. I don't want to be in a fight. I want it to, uh, I don't want to be in, a, in an argument. I want to find some resolution because when I do, when this relationship is happy, when I, I'm happier, I find, you know, I'm more effective in everything. So it's like, of course, sort of confront it head on and deal with it. And that's been, you know, most effective, at least from my perspective. 
Yeah. And one thing I'll say too, and I don't know if we've, again, talked about this, Brandon, is that when we, when you do need a beat, when you do need space, like in the middle of an argument, some people need space. You communicate to me like I'm coming back or I just need a minute to cool off. We are going to talk about this. And so you're very aware of how your behavior could be read by me and the story I might tell myself. So I, I really appreciate that about you. But let's, let's go back to Farzana and your writing <laughs> We're just getting free therapy. Yeah, <laughs> we think about writing as therapeutic. Uh, I, I want to just quickly mention, and I don't know if I've, if I've mentioned this yet, but a couple in one of my groups the other day was saying that each night they write one another a thank you note in the thank you journal. They take turns, like one person writes on Monday and the next person writes on Tuesday, and they read the note before they write theirs the next night. And they've been doing this for four years, and they have four basically couples' gratitude journals to reflect back on. And I think about all the different ways we can use writing, whether it's creative or therapeutic or just simply for communicating and uh, reminding one another what we appreciate. There there are so, so many ways. Uh, poetry is something that I've really never explored. Uh, I was an English teacher, but my English teachers really turned me off of it because they made it so structured and analytical that I didn't really see the art in it. And I didn't, I definitely didn't feel the feeling. Like I remember actually doing a project on T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And I remember sort of being enthralled by the content, by the writing, but then being totally off put by the way I was forced to break it down. Like it really just took away from that experience of feeling something. And play as well. You know, poetry can be such play. I actually had a good experience in primary school. And it was when I got to high school and university that I got turned off of writing. So it was a journey to come back because I had, you know, these these very stern, critical teachers' voices in my head. So how do you, you know, you just have to replace it with your own eventually. Right. And I'm glad you came back because you have for us your poetry collection. You still look the same and you're going to do a reading. Have you done a reading yet? Because this is a brand new book. I haven't. Yeah, because the book doesn't actually drop until May 1st, technically. So I haven't. And I think this is my first interview as well. So that's that's kind of fun. Lucky and I was for just us. thinking, yeah, I was I was um actually just wanting, I'm going to read a different poem, but I wanted to say that I've written a few love poems in this book that are dedicated to my partner, Ayan. And I think that's one of the ways that I make sure that I express to him what I'm feeling. So I think it, it does end up having this sort of impact, right, of showing a lot of care. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm going to read something from the earlier stages of my experience in my 40s. So yeah, I did go through this big breakup. And for the first time in my life, I was exploring online dating. Like imagine doing that as, you know, 41, 42 year old. And I was also exploring non-monogamy. And, you know, so my, my brain was just flooded with a lot of new ideas and experiences and a lot of people as well, new people. <laughs> so I'll just go ahead and read it. Thank you. Okay, so this poem is called Swipe Left. Swipe Left, the research question. What's it like to be a straight girl looking for love? My design may be flawed, but after many dates, countless online interactions to understand your customs, I've reached an interim hypothesis. Your men are a problem. Perhaps that's not accurate. I have no control group and my subjectivity is the consistent dependent variable. 
My data suggests direct communication is not a norm. There is much baby, baby, smile for me and jokes that go one beat too far. I don't profess expertise in linguistic. A colleague suggests my sample is skewed, that there are precisely 21 straight cis dudes ruining dating apps for everyone. I don't disagree with that theory, but doubt its accuracy. It's easy to recruit subjects. An ounce of ethanol, a single survey question, they'll follow you home. I stand by my method of observer immersion. An interesting finding, they think they are taking you to bed even when it's your key turning the lock. My funding allows me to employ my dog, secondary researcher to assess subjects at door. I document carefully the length and quality of each sniffing episode <laughs> and whether she rolls her eyes or sits for a treat. A confounding variable. Once and only once did she snarl at a tall white man who wore a fedora and smelled of desperation. I dropped him from my study. Quixotic reliability. Each and every time I introduce queer theory into the interview, the subjects reveal one identical porn fantasy. The most significant part of the experiment is not the most pleasurable and vice versa. I'm not always certain how to code pillow talk. Qualitative data tumbles from lips, leaves stains on my pillowcases, outlines lingering for weeks. I've recorded 31% tenderness combined with 66% white supremacy and 72% mansplaining. At the end of the project, I will deactivate my account, ghost my participants, won't present any findings. Ooh, I have never online dated and I don't want to now. <laughs> Although I'm always telling people that it's the norm. And uh, obviously, you know, I do know many people who have found more than 31% tenderness, but it takes a lot of sifting, it sounds like. It does. It takes a lot of sifting. And I'm glad I did it. Like I, you know, one of the amazing things about dating and dating non-monogamously is you meet a lot of people. And for me, I found myself being attracted to and wanting to keep connections with kind of the same person over and over again and it wasn't working out for me and then I had to really look at myself and say well what part of this is me <laughs> and I did a deeper dive around attachment theory at that time I had learned about it and of course I was working with it in my practice but I did a much deeper dive to understand myself and that was a really good thing <laughs> and it seems like the way it's described in this poem so much work yeah, you know, at the time I felt like it was fun, right? It was novelty. Oh, good. good. And it was kind of exciting. And then after about a year, year and a half of it, I felt like, oh gosh, I'm kind of getting tired of this. It was a project. It felt almost like a hobby with the amount of time I was putting into it. Yeah, I was really glad to meet my partner. And how did you meet? How did you meet? We actually, we met at a dance. So we met in person, not online. And I think that that 
was helpful. Like I experienced something really electric between us when we were dancing, you know, feeling each other's bodies, breath in each other's hair. Like there's something about that that gives you different input around, am I comfortable in my body with this person? Right. So much of the intuition when you don't bring your dog on the date to let you know with a sniff or a snarl. I'm curious because you were dating polyamorously, what sites, what apps were you using? I was just on OkCupid. There was there was another app that I, I can't remember what it's called and it didn't last very long because there weren't enough people. But yeah, I just used OkCupid. And then you indicate that you're dating multiple people so you're open to polyamory? Yes, I did. I did because I didn't want to, you know, encounter people who would be offended by that or upset by that. I wanted it out in the open. Did you find that non-polyamorous people would approach you with, uh, I guess, misconceptions about what dating polyamorously meant? Like, for example, would married people approach you and think like, oh, married people who were supposed to be in a monogamous relationship? Um, I didn't get much of that. I think because I had written my introduction in a very kind of intentional way. I didn't get too much, but I think, you know, all of us are only taught about monogamy. And so there can be so many misconceptions about non-monogamy, polyamory. And, you know, I had all of those misconceptions at some point in my life. And I had some of them as I was experiencing all of it as well. You know, in the end, as I was doing this deep dive around my own attachment style, I really realized that for me, monogamy worked best in the end. I loved how dating multiple people created complexity and interesting experiences, but it also created a little bit of internal chaos for me. Mm. Right. And that's different for everyone. And I guess we have to learn that about ourselves. Yeah. Uh, it curious. works for lots of people, right? Of course, of course. Um, and so I'm curious if the writing throughout the dating process helped you to better understand how you were feeling and what worked for you. Yes, like I, I wrote this poem while I was doing the online dating. And, you know, it's really easy when you're in the midst of an experience to kind of skip over some of the things that are flags. Like, And I don't mean like relationship flags so much, but maybe pushing aside the things that you're saying, I don't think I like this, but you know, I'll go along with it. And so to write it down was a great way to identify, oh, yeah, I actually feel this way about it. Right. Because some of those things can kind of we can feel them in our subconscious or don't take the time, as you said, we're maybe not intentional about noting how those feelings show up in our bodies. So whether people are dating or happily single or polyamorous or solely polyamorous or in, in monogamous relationships, if they do want to explore writing as therapeutic to support their overall fulfillment, but especially relational fulfillment with self or others. Where do you suggest people begin? Like, how do we know if we want to write poetry or lists or prose? Um, like, I know what works for me, but it's only because I've tried other things. So where do people begin? I think you just try. The other thing is, like, let's say you, you're interested in a particular style. So you're maybe thinking, could I write poetry? Start reading other people's poetry, you know, find the stuff you like, you know, the stuff you, that really gives you pleasure that you enjoy. If you're reading poetry and you don't get it or whatever, it's not resonating, stop, go and find stuff that you like. And then you'll find yourself emulating that poetry through your own experience. So but I would say free writing is a great way to start, right? Where there's no rules, there's no structure, just 
get a notebook and write. And I think writing with, with a pen or pencil gives you a different kind of access to your emotions. And it's also slower than typing. Mm -hmm. So I like that for writing poetry, but I also write using a keyboard and I'll have my phone out to write things as well. So just find a way that's easy. Right, whatever feels comfortable for you. And as you said, if you need some inspiration, people can check out your book coming out in May. You still look the same. Farzana, doctor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for doing your first reading with us. I'm going to have to put like a sticker on it so everyone knows. Awesome. Exclusive first reading. <laughs> first of you drop. still Yeah, first drop. You still look the same. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you for hanging with us. Uh, you know, WeVibe has extended their 15% off sale only until the end of this week, so June 10th. So head on over to WeVibe.com all over the world and get the best rabbit vibe on the market, which is called the Nova 2, the Nova 2. Uh, really, really cool technology, app-enabled, perfect for blended orgasms. Or maybe you want to go check out the most powerful and practical C-ring, the Pivot, which I know is Ooh. Brandon's favorite. Big or, fan, big or, fan. Or my personal favorite, which doesn't involve a penis at all, the versatile <laughs> the versatile Touch X, um, which obviously we use together too. So I've had the Touch for many years, and the Touch X is the upgraded version. And like I said, WeVibe has extended their very rare sale. They don't have 15% off sales very often. Uh, and you can use code Dr. Jess for the savings only this week at WeVibe.com. All right, that is a wrap for this week. We'll be back next Friday with a conversation about erotic embodiments with the really lovely and brilliant Dr. Lucy Fielding. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.